If you would take your Bibles to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, as I study for sermons to preach in the different services, oftentimes God uses them in a great way before I ever get to the pulpit to preach in, in my own life. And to be honest with you, over the last month, every time I read this passage, I would have more questions uh, that I don't have answers to, and I would be even challenged more in my walk with God and my life living for Him. And even over the last couple of days, as I read through this passage once again, God used it in my heart and life to challenge me again, and I hope that He'll do the same in your life, understanding as we come I'll bring out some questions. Some questions we'll never have the answers for on this side of eternity. Other questions that might arise, God does give us the answers to. But, but I hope that God will use this passage to challenge you. There are many words that we can use to describe the world that we live in. We mentioned just a few moments ago how we traveled out west. And, and uh, it, what, what an amazing trip it was to go and jokingly, there's nothing, you know, outside or west of Indianapolis. But man, when you get out there, uh, you know, to the mountains and to the Yellowstone area and those type of things, I mean, the one word that comes is just amazing. Uh, another word is, is just beautiful to think about it. We weren't able to go into Yellowstone. We got several texts and emails and, and comments about it because we were planning on going into Yellowstone. And uh, actually for me, one of the best things that happened was we had to change our plans. And so because we weren't able to get into Yellowstone early in the trip, we went up to Montana to the Bighorn Mountains. And uh, that was one of the best hikes that we had. I thought I was going to die. But once we got up there, I mean, the, the views were, were beautiful. It was amazing. Then we went down to the Grand Tetons, and um, I literally died, I think, for a few moments hiking there because Kaylee got tired, and I carried her up the mountain for a while, and I was struggling carrying myself at that point. Um, but man, once you got up there and you just saw the, the beautiful views, and I don't know how anybody can look at this creation and not believe in God. Like, it's just amazing to me to, to look at it. But you know, the sad truth is, because of sin, another word that really describes our world is the word conflict. And that's the title for our message today, conflict. And this really has been true from the time that sin entered into the world. Now, there's obviously conflict between man and God. But there would, there would be conflict between Adam and Eve. I can only imagine Eve rolling her eyes as Adam says to God, the woman that you gave me. Hey, wait a minute, buddy. What are you talking about? The woman that he gave you. I'm the best thing that ever happened to you is probably what she said. And uh, there was, you married up because that's all guys marry up. And so there was conflict between them. There would be conflict between Cain and Abel. And on and on it goes throughout history. The truth is some people thrive on conflict. It seems to follow them everywhere they go. And everybody in here thought about a person just like that. Because we all know people, everywhere they go, they find conflict. The great conflict really in our world today is between righteousness and unrighteousness. Light 
and darkness. Selfish people want their, their way. And so they look at truth and they reject it because it does not satisfy their desires or it does not line up with their own understanding because men are blinded. They're spiritually blind. And so we see in our world today, people want government to control as long as it fits their agenda. But they will regret this control when it oversteps into an area that they do not agree with or do they do not want to give up control. Conflict is even found in the realm of Christianity or religion. We'll see conflict this morning and how Jesus uses this conflict to further his plans and his agenda. Now, in, in chapter 4, Jesus was in Cana of Galilee, and, and he went up. We come to chapter 5, and verse number 1, he goes to Jerusalem because there is, there is a feast. Now, we, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, and just to reiterate, there's several questions as you read through these first, particularly eight verses, uh, that might come to mind. First of all, uh, what is going on at this pool? The Bible tells us there was this pool of water with five porches, and all of these sick and halt and lame people were around, and, and once a year or so, there was this moving of the water. And the first individual that got in um, was, was healed. And so what really is going on? Is there an angel? Is this some miraculous healing uh, water? Uh, later on, the Roman government would make this a medicinal pool. And uh, we, we really don't know what was going on. And that's a question that we look forward to. The Bible tells us that Jesus makes his way there. And, and, and you can imagine, this is not the, the rich area of town. There's people that are miserable, that are have infirmities, that are laid all around this, this pool. And Jesus makes his way there, and he makes his way to this particular man. Now, up to this point, Jesus was going around healing people. In some places, everywhere he went, everybody was healed. So the question comes to our mind is, if there's all of these halt and lame and, and people that have these infirmities, why this man and why not everybody else? I don't know if Jesus healed everybody else, but God wanted to, to point out that this man was healed. So why? I'm looking forward to getting that answer one day. That's a question that we don't have the answer. How many, why this particular man alone? There's another question that comes up as we read this passage. What did this man do? Excuse me. Jesus tells him later on, we'll see in these verses that, we, that Matt read, that Jesus comes and finds this man and he tells him, go and sin no more. And, and the idea here is that whatever this man's infirmity was, was because of his, his own actions. Now, it isn't true that every time that you have a sickness or an illness, it's because of, because of sin. Well, we really could say it is because of sin, because without sin entering into the world, but particularly it wasn't because of this person's sin. Sometimes you just get cancer. Sometimes people just die young for one reason or another, and it's part of God's plan. But there are times when there is a sickness because of your lifestyle, because of your particular sin. You know, if you smoke cigarettes for 30 years, don't be surprised if you get lung cancer. I mean, it's just the way 
It's just the way of life. If you drive 150 miles an hour through downtown Anderson, don't be surprised if you have a car accident and either kill yourself or kill somebody else. It's amazing. We do stupid things in our life sometimes, and then we're shocked when we have to face the consequences of it. Uh, we don't know what this man's sin was, but Jesus is going to tell him, listen, go and sin no more, or if you do sin, there's going to be worse consequences for you. Now, we don't know what his sin was and what he did to cause it to get into this affirmity, but we know that there was something going on here. In John chapter 9, we're going to see the same question come up where there's a, a man that's born blind. And, and even the disciples, they ask Jesus, they say, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? That's an interesting question considering the man was born blind. So did they believe that he sinned in the womb or, or what? But, but they thought somebody had sinned. And Jesus said to them, listen, neither. But he was going to use this situation to glorify God. And so a lot of times things happen, even in our own lives, that we don't understand why, but God is going to use them to bring glory to his own name. There are many things that I look forward to finding out when we get to heaven, but God, John doesn't give us these answers. Because remember, if you go to John chapter 20, he says, everything that I'm giving you, you need to believe. That's why I'm writing the things that I'm writing, so that you can that believe that Jesus is, and that he is the Son of God, that he is the way of, the way of salvation. Now, also by way of introduction, as we come to John 5, we see that Jesus, there's two things that pop up in this passage that I want to just talk about. Jesus goes up for a feast, and then the other one is referenced multiple times to the Sabbath day. When we go back to the beginning of the nation of Israel, God's plan for them was a plan of rest and worship in the nation of Israel. He expected them to work and labor, but he lays out a plan for them to have rest and to have a time of worship. Israel had seven feasts, three main ones, three main feasts where they were to, to go to Jerusalem for a week. Uh, um, imagine that. Three times a year, you had to leave your home. You had to leave uh, your, your labor, your work, your farm. And, and think about the society we're talking about here. Listen, this isn't 2022 United States of America where, you know, our Saturdays and Sundays are set aside for recreation or not working. These people work to survive. You know, we, we want to get to the weekend so that we can relax. They, they, they had daily to get up and, and do the task just to live life. And, and God sets aside not only the, the Sabbath, which we'll talk about in a minute, but these feasts where they're to leave their homes and, and to, to travel. Then they're to be in Jerusalem for a week. And then they're to travel back home. And all along the way, God provides for them. He sustains them. He takes care of their land and their flocks and their resources so that the nation of Israel can have this time of rest and worship. Then we come down to, to verse number 9, our, our first reference there in chapter 5. And the Bible tells us that the same day was the Sabbath. And this is going to be a point of contention, really the main point of conflict in our passage between Jesus and these other people. But I want you to think about the Sabbath for just a moment. The Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel. God had commanded them to take a day of rest and worship, and, and they were to set aside their, their daily tasks 
and enjoy the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was not given to the church. Of all the Ten Commandments that we see in the Old Testament, the, the, the Sabbath commandment is the only one that's not repeated in the New Testament. Now, we gather together corporately for worship on Sunday because it was the pattern of the first century church there in the New Testament. They gathered together on the first day of the week because this was the day that Christ rose from the, from the grave. It would actually become known as the Lord's Day, and many of us even refer to it as, as that today. And so we see the, the feast and, and the Sabbath and this time of rest in the nation of Israel. Now, this is, has nothing to do with my, my sermon, but I've, I've thought about this in life a lot. And, you know, we're so busy in our society today. We're, we're so busy because, you know, I think we, we have to perform. We, we always want something more, something better. We're never satisfied. So how can we get more? So sometimes we're so busy because we're just bored. We struggle taking time to set aside a time to, to just be with God. You know, you ask kids today, teenagers, even young adults, even older adults, why don't, why don't you read your Bible? Why don't you spend time? Well, it's boring. Because we're in this fast-paced world where we, want, we, we don't even want commercials anymore. And we, 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 wanna, we want it now, and we want to see it, and we want to be entertained, and, and everything's got to be high energy and, and enthusiastic. We see that in the church today. Everything's got to be high energy and, 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 and enthusiastic and light shows and all that stuff. And, and I'm not saying any of that's wrong, but we lost sight of this concept of, of rest. Now, God did not command us to take the Sabbath, but I think the biblical principles of rest— needs to be a priority in our life. We need to take time to set time aside on a regular basis to rejuvenate. You hear people say, well, you know, I'll have time to sleep when I die. And, you know, that might be sooner rather than later if that's the way that you live your life. But that's no way to live. I mean, you're just constantly in turmoil and, and, and struggling. And so let me encourage you to, to find time on a regular basis, to, to, to rest. It, it shouldn't be that, you know, we get to the point where we're just slap worn out that we fall over because, and, and we're no use to anybody. Listen, you're no use to anybody long before you fall out. You're not productive. You have no energy. You, you, just, you just struggle. So that's a, an extra sermon for you to take away from today. Another thing by introduction I want to bring out is Jesus asked this man we saw a couple weeks ago, do you want to be made whole? And I spent some time over the last week thinking about that question. Do you want to be made whole? I mean, what a question. Here is a man that is helpless from our perspective. And there's, and he's just laying there. And he's by this pool. And Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to be made whole? You know, there is a concept that has been developed called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. An individual can look at a situation as inescapable, inescapable, excuse me, even though they can get out of it if, if they would just make some changes in lifestyle choices. The man looks at Jesus and says, yeah, I want to be made whole, but. And that's a lot of times what we do in our life. We, we look at the situation, do you want to be helped? Yeah, but, but I can't. And we constantly look at why we can't get out of the situation because we're comfortable in our helplessness. And it's easy to get this way in our lives. 
well, there's nothing I can do about it. This is the way, way that it is. God calls us to do something, and we say, I can't. God says, no, this is my expectation. Yeah, I know this is what you want, but... You know, some people don't want to get out of their helplessness because they realize that when they do, there's some new responsibilities, there's new expectations, there's new opportunities. Many people don't want healing because they've learned to, to play, the, play the victim. And so helplessness has become, has become a way of life. And so as, as Christ asked this man, do you want to be made whole? I've asked myself that question multiple times as I've read through the Gospel of John. Do you want to be more like Christ? Well, yeah, I want to be more like Christ, but, and that's kind of where we go to. But I, but I live in a sinful world, but I deal with sinful people, but you don't understand my family, but you don't understand what I'm going through in life. And we've, we, we're starting to play the victim, even as Christians. Well, this is just who I am. This is just how I've been made. And what I've found myself is I said, Daniel, Get over yourself. Get over yourself. And let God do the work that he wants to do in your life and make you who he wants you to be. And really, that's the really should be the message for all of us as Christians. Because when we look at God and we say, listen, there's no way, there's no way that I can change. There's no way that I can grow. There's no way because you've put me in this situation. You made me this way. What we're doing is we're playing the victim. God, it's your fault that I have this issue. It's your fault that I'm going through this. Maybe we like the attention. We're comfortable where we are. Maybe people have some expectations on us. Well, listen, if people think I'm growing and I'm a strong Christian, maybe they'll want me to, to go out and share the gospel. Maybe they'll want me to teach Sunday school. Maybe they'll ask me to do something, and I don't really want to do that. In our selfishness, we, we, we find ourselves comfortable. You know, it's easy to look out at people in our world today and say they, they, they play the victim. But the same can be true in our own lives as well. Do you want to be made whole? What a question. What, 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 a, what a question. Do we want to be made who Christ wants us to be? Because the truth is none of us are whole. We, we're all broken, and we all have issues, and we're all struggling, and we're all, we're all dealing with conflict in our world today. And, and a lot of times it's conflict within ourselves, in our own sinfulness. But do we want to, to be made who Christ wants us to be? Or do we simply say, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but. Yeah, I, I understand this is what God wants for me, for me but. But I'm just going to stay right where I am and, and make my excuses and, and be where I'm at. Now let's get to our message. Those are a lot of questions, a lot of just things that I've contemplated as I've read through this passage and, and thought about this situation. But when we come to verse number nine is where I want to, or, or verse number eight is where I want us to start this morning. Jesus saith unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. So the first thing we see is the, the healing. Jesus says to this man, stand up. And, and here is a man that is miraculously healed. I mean, could you imagine I mean, being there, and, and he's been there 38 years. He's been in this state, in this situation. All of these people are around, and Jesus walks up and looks at this man, and he says, stand up and be healed. And immediately, the Bible tells us, the man stood up. He didn't need therapy. His muscles were automatically 
strengthened. Could you imagine the crowd? Could you imagine this own man? I mean, this man, I mean, imagine what it must have been like. I mean, Jesus says, stand up. Did he feel the strength getting there in his legs as he immediately stood up? I mean, imagine the surprise by the people around him who, who themselves wanted to be healed. I mean, this was something that was amazing. And then Jesus says to him, take up your bed and walk. I asked myself, why? Why take up the bed? You think about it. This mat that he'd been lay on, laying on must have been filthy. And the, the, probably the bigger question or the bigger issue is he didn't need it anymore. I mean, he had no reason to take this filthy, disgusting mat, roll it up, stick it under his arm, and take it with him. And most of us, most of us would have said, no way. We would have stood up and said, hey, I'm out of here. Appreciate it, but I don't need that thing anymore. But Christ tells him to take it for some reason. And I think we're going to see here in just a few moments why Christ told him to take it. But in verse number 9, the Bible tells us there that the same day this happened was the Sabbath. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. So the second thing we see after the healing is the conflict begins. The Jews here refer to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These were probably members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling group in, in the nation of Israel at this time. But think about it for just a moment. The man was healed. This should be a time of, of celebration and rejoicing and, and glorifying God. But they were so blinded they were so blinded that they missed the miracle and all they saw was a man carrying a bed. It wasn't God's law, but it was, it was their law. These were the commandments of men that Jesus is going to later rebuke them for. We, we talked about the Sabbath just a little bit and, and I want you to understand something. They had changed the Sabbath into something that it wasn't. God had given the Sabbath for the nation of Israel for a time of rest and worship, but it had become a, a time of burden on them. The, the, on the Sabbath day, they began to introduce laws and, and pass rules that, that the people couldn't do, and so you couldn't work or you couldn't bear a burden. I read this week that people in that day that had false teeth, you could not put your false teeth in on, on the Sabbath as that was considered a burden. They were... It was amazing to think about. They, they couldn't walk more than a thousand feet from their front door, from their house. A thousand feet, you were good. But 1,001, now it was a burden. Now it was, it was work. And now you were breaking the Sabbath. You couldn't kindle a fire. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we really get a good picture of their mindset of the Sabbath. I hope that you'll go there sometime and read it. But Jesus and his disciples were walking. They were walking through a wheat field. And the Bible tells us it was the Sabbath day. And they were hungry. And so the disciples reached down and, and grabbed a, a, a thing of wheat. And, and so they would take their, that wheat in their hands and they would rub it together to get the chaff off. They would blow the chaff away and then they would eat it like eating 
a handful of granola or something. And so they, would, they did it again, and they would rub their hands together, and they would eat it, and this was considered unlawful based on the rules or the laws of the Pharisees. And so in that time, the Pharisees were watching this situation. And I don't know if this was a group of people that were following Jesus and his disciples, why were they were there looking, watching him walk across his field, but they were there. And they were looking maybe for him to, to fail or to, to mess up. And so when he does this, they come and they say, it's unlawful for you to work or to do this on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus then takes them to the scriptures. He says, you remember David? David went into the temple and he ate the showbread, which was unlawful for him. The priests, they did their work on the Sabbath, which according to your rules would be unlawful. And then he tells them that the Son of Man was the one that made the Sabbath. I am the Son of Man and I am the one, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and the truth is God gave the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And they lost sight of this. And so in the middle of this conflict, we see a major issue. And it's an issue that we don't like to use the term often. It's the issue of, of legalism. Man-made rules. There were a certain group. They were making up the rules. They were adding to God's word. And then they would go around and they would criticize everybody that did not take or keep these rules. This really has permeated the church throughout history. And it's amazing the things that we hold on to as, as biblical. When I first started pastoring in Virginia at our church, there was no children's ministries whatsoever. And so I started uh, an Awana program on Wednesday nights. And so we went, we did Awana on Wednesday nights. The problem is, is our Wednesday night service started at 7.30 and went to 8.30. And so that's pretty late. And so I, after the first year, I thought, man, we really need to, to change this around. And so we moved our Awana program to, to Sunday night, which we started at 6 o'clock because it wasn't nearly as, as late. And I had a guy in my church, he came to me and he said, listen, we can't move that from Wednesday to Sunday night. And I said, well, well, why not? He said, because it's wrong, because you do your children's program on Wednesday night. We've always done it that way. I'm like, we've always done it that way. We started last year. We've done it one year. And we've already bought into the fact that it's wrong to move it from Wednesday night to Sunday night. But what he did was he found out other churches in our area, they do their kids' program on Wednesday night. And so therefore, if everybody does it on Wednesday night, that must be the right way, the only way that we can do it. And we hold on to that. I remember what in life, you know, people would question, you know, activities that you do on Sunday. Why? Because Sunday is now your, your Sabbath. And so I'd get criticized for playing basketball on, on Sunday. Or I remember I went to college, and in the college that I went to, you couldn't play sports on Sunday unless you were doing ministry. So I remember my freshman year, I started a, a basketball outreach ministry on Sunday afternoon. I got a group of my friends, and we went around the neighborhood. We invited kids to come out and play basketball. We'd play basketball for two or three hours. We'd share the gospel with them, and then we would go back to, to college. And we, it was okay. It was approved because it was ministry. But if you weren't preaching the gospel or doing ministry, then you were basically to, to, to sit around in your room. Legalism has permeated, unfortunately, the church. But, you know, Sabbath for these folks was a gift of, of rest, but it was perverted into something that God did not attend. Some have asked the question over the years, you know, how could Jesus, 
How could Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh who never sinned, how could he break the Sabbath like that? And the reality is, is he didn't break the Sabbath that God intended. He broke these man-made rules that they had developed throughout history. He broke their concept of, of religion. I read an article this last week on the topic of legalism, and, and it, it was interesting because, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll associate legalism with works-based salvation, and that, that is the, the foundation of the concept of legalism, but oftentimes it can go even beyond that. The article was referencing a, a professor by the name, by the man named uh, Dan Doriani, and he wrote a book on this issue, and, and he, he puts legalism into four classes. Class one, he says, legalists declare what one must do in order to obtain favor or salvation. So the rich young ruler was one, a class one legalist. Class two legalists declare what good deeds or spiritual disciplines one must perform to retain God's favor and salvation. Class three legalists love the law so much that they create new laws, laws not found in scripture and require submission to them. And this would be the Pharisees we find in John chapter 5. A class 4 legalist avoid these gross errors, the article says, but they so accentuate obedience to the law of God that other ideas shrivel up. They reason, God has redeemed us at the cost of his son's life. Now he demands our service in return. He has given us his spirit and a new nature and has stated his will and so with these resources, we obey his law in gratitude for our redemption. This is our duty to God. In an important way, this is true, but class four legalists dwell on the law of God until they forget the love and the grace of God. Worshiping, delighting in, communing with him, and conforming to God or to Christ's image are forgotten. Class four legalists can preach sermons in which every sentence is true while the whole is oppressive. It is oppressive to proclaim Christ as the lawgiver to whom we owe a vast debt as if we must somehow repay him, repay God for his gift to us. It's easy to get wrapped up into our set of rules and to look around and to say everybody must keep up to, to our standards. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were setting up their rules but you know, there's another side of legalism that I do not want to miss. Legalism often is attached to people that want to genuinely obey God and to keep his, his word. I, I want us to understand as a church, obeying God and obeying the word of God is not legalism. Full transparency, I was a major legalist as a young teenager, as, as a young believer, and I would judge other people because they did things I didn't do. They didn't do the things that I was supposed to do. And you know what I found in life is I got tired. I got tired of being the, the police for everybody else. And really what I found is that I wasn't policing them to the word of God. I was policing them to the rules and standards that I've had. And so I remember when I, God kind of helped me in this area as I was studying scripture and as a young man and, and figuring this out. And, and I said, you know what? I'm responsible for my life before God. 
And as a pastor, I'm responsible for what I preach and teach from the pulpit. But you're responsible for how you live your life before God. And so I came to the conclusion a long time ago, I, I'm going to develop biblical standards for my life. So the standards that I have are based, I, I believe, on biblical principles. And, and I'm going to model them before my wife, before my children, before the people in our congregation, before people in our community. That that's, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will help you do the same thing. Because if I'm going to run around and I'm going to, you know, get on to you for everything that you do that's different than me, everything that you like that, that I don't think you should like, man, I, I just, I get worn out. I mean, it, it, it's hard. It, it's really miserable. And that's what you find a lot of times, even in the, the lives of these Pharisees, they were miserable because they were so consumed with making sure everybody else was keeping the rules that they have developed. Listen, don't think that obeying God is somehow wrong. And we've gone so far the other way that we have this mindset that, well, well, if you tell me I need to obey God or I need to keep this rule or keep this standard, then you're a legalist. No, I, I, listen, I love God. I love his word and I want to know it and I want to obey it. And that's what, that's what God wants for you and for me in our lives today. And don't jump ship and say, okay, now I don't have to keep these rules and I don't have to keep to have standards in my life. That, that's foolish thinking. That's really destructive thinking. But a lot of times we get to the place where these Pharisees are and we lose our mind and we lose sight. And so now because of these Pharisees and their legalism, now there's this conflict. They said, wait a minute, you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. And because of their legalistic mindset, they lose sight of what just happened. Hey, wait a minute. We've walked past you. We've seen you laying there. You've been for 38 years in this situation. How in the world did this happen? You know, in the church, sometimes somebody will get saved and they're not, they don't conform to our standards right away. And this is what we'll say. We'll see if it's true. They, they profess that they got saved, but, but look at them. I mean, what major change has happened in their life. And we lose sight of the fact that, listen, God just did a great work in their life and they put their faith in Christ and they're no longer on their way to hell, but they're saved by the glorious grace of God. But we can't see past our mindset and our standards to, to, to rejoice with them. A young man got saved in our church in Virginia when I was working for Dr. Forrester and, 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 and he showed up in his suit to church but he smelled like cigarettes. One of the deacons blasted him, and who do you think you are smelling like that and coming up in here? And what a terrible mindset. We lost sight, and this man just got gloriously redeemed, and we're so consumed by the way he smells. He didn't quit smoking to get saved, but listen, God gloriously helped him quit smoking later after he got saved. But we lose sight of the work that God is doing. Well, we'll see if it lasts. Yeah, they said they stopped drinking alcohol. We'll see if it lasts. They said that they, they're going to go out and visit. We'll see if it lasts. They said that they want to serve God. They, listen, they showed up today, but we'll see if they come next week. We're so consumed with judging everybody else for their walk with God that we lose sight of the work that God is actually doing in their life. That's where these folks found themselves. Hey, listen, 
We don't care that you got healed. You should not be carrying this bed on the Sabbath. And so our third point then is the persecution that's going to come. Look with me. He answered them. They asked him, who, who, who told you to do this? He that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. And they asked him, what man is it that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he said, and he that was healed wist not who it was for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. And so it was pretty crowded and, and Jesus heals this man and, and, and then he, he disappears, I guess, into the crowd. And the man had no idea who it was. But then another question arises here. Afterward, verse 14, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto, unto thee. Why did Jesus go and find the man in the temple? Well, the Bible tells us here that, verse 15, the man departed after, I guess, maybe he didn't like what Jesus said. If you sin again, something worse is going to happen to you. He departs and he, told, he goes to the Jews and tells them, tells on Christ, it was Jesus which made him whole. In verse 16, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. The man goes and turns Jesus in. And what we find here happening is the beginning of the persecution of Christ. Why did all these things happen? Why did Christ go to this one man in, in the city and heal him? Why did he tell him, take up your bed and walk? Why did he come back and find him in the temple? You know what I come to realize is he did all that for me. What do you mean? He's setting up the circumstances that are going to send him to the cross. The persecution of Christ has begun. We look at that last week uh, when he's going to the cross. But really, we see now the conflict setting up so that he could go to the cross for you and for me. So that he could die on the cross for my sin and be the payment for my sin and for your sin. Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees. He knew the hearts of these religious leaders. He knew they were more consumed with their rules than they were knowing the Messiah. He knew they, they said they believed the scriptures. They said they were looking for the Messiah, but here he was, and they weren't looking. They were just, they were satisfied in their religious activity. You know, maybe you're here today, and, and you're satisfied with going to church. My friend, that is foolish thinking. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can go to church as much as you want and die in your sins and go to hell. Jesus Christ was setting the stage to go to the cross to be the payment for your sin. It, it took conflict. It took conflict with these religious leaders. There was a conflict between righteousness and unrighteousness. Those that seemed spiritual were lost. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were the enemy of God, and that comes to fruition, and we see it throughout the New Testament. And the reality is, without Christ, I am his enemy. I am in conflict with God. 
No man can come to the Father. No man can be healed. No man can be saved. No man can have his sins forgiven. And when I say healed, I mean spiritually. No man can have any of that without Jesus Christ. If you're here today, the truth is you are in conflict with God without Christ. But the Bible says there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ. We are, made, we are at peace with God when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. So are you in conflict with God, living your, according to your own rules, your own standards, trying to get to God in your own way, your own power, trying to hold everybody else to that standard, or are you at peace with God through Jesus Christ? And then for those of us that say, listen, I'm a believer. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. Are you living in conflict of trying to, to govern everybody else's life and rule them and, and make sure that they're doing everything exactly the way that you expect them to do it? Are you at peace with God? Growing in Christ, becoming the Christian he wants you to be, helping people where you can help them, encouraging people where you can encourage them. The honest truth is, as a pastor, my heart gets broken all the time for people that I preach to and talk with and counsel, and, and they go right against the Word of God. But we have to be there to love them and encourage them and help them. But instead of being there to make sure everybody's crossing their T's and dotting their I's, we should be there to lift up people and help them and encourage them in their walk with God. There's a difference. One is rejuvenating and exciting. One is miserable and wearisome and really terrible. As a believer, we should be here to, to encourage people to walk with God, keep his word, and help them. And when they fail, come alongside of them. When a brother falls, you which are spiritual, restore such a one. Don't beat them into submission. Restore them back to their walk with God. 